Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu .com, code GLOW. We experience reality all the time, yet we struggle to understand it. The first of New Scientist's essential guides does the job for you. Available in print or digital form, check it out at shop.newscientist.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarche, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us today is New Scientist Features Editor Kat Delange and Deputy Features Editor Gilad Amit. Hi both. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Coming up on the show, a delicious lockdown treat you can make at home. An extraordinary novel by Mary Shelley about a pandemic, how you can protect your mental health during the coronavirus crisis and why men seem to get COVID-19 worse than women. But first, every now and then, there comes a story that is so out there, it blows your mind. And this story has done that for me. It involves the idea of a parallel universe, which I love. I love this idea. On its own, it's mind-blowing enough. But usually it's quite safely theoretical. It's a fun idea to think about. But now we might have actual evidence for the existence of a parallel universe to our own. Gilad, you edited this story. Take it away. So this is a very special, very strange kind of parallel universe. It's not the sort you might commonly think of, a universe identical to our own, except for one small tweak, such as you're a millionaire or you're vastly more successful or you're able to go outside for more than an hour a day. <laughs> right. So it's not the many worlds kind of multiverse idea. No, that's right. This, uh, this is an idea dreamt up by theorists at the Perimeter Institute in Canada to try and explain why the Big Bang created a universe like ours. Because one of the most mysterious aspects of our universe is that we have vastly more matter than antimatter, when we should have roughly equal amounts. It's a big problem in physics and one that I know you've mentioned before on the podcast. Right. The solution that these theorists have come up with is to imagine that the Big Bang actually created two universes instead of one. So one, ours, contains most of the matter with a little sprinkling of antimatter, and the other contains mostly antimatter. And that way, reality as a whole is balanced, even though neither universe is on its own. 
But for this parallel universe to exist, the laws of physics say it has to be even weirder. So not only is it an antimatter version of our own, but it's also mirror flipped and traveling backwards in time which means that instead of evolving away from the Big Bang like we are doing, this parallel universe is speeding towards it. Okay, I'm just going to park that there for a minute because I can't quite get my head around it, but let's just go with it. Okay, so we've called this kind of parallel universe the antiverse. And until recently, it was, as you were saying before, just a cool bit of theoretical physics. But now it turns out there might be evidence to support it. One of the few testable predictions that this theory makes is that our universe would have been born with a new type of particle called a right-handed neutrino. And it turns out that an experiment in Antarctica may have spotted one. Antarctica may seem like an odd place to set up an experiment, but uh, physicists are jostling for the available real estate. That's because when particles from outer space hit the ice, they give off telltale signals that would be easy to miss elsewhere on Earth. So if you want to learn about fundamental particles, go to the South Pole. And one of the coolest experiments there, figuratively as well as literally, is called ANITA. ANITA is a funny name for a physics experiment. It stands for Antarctic Impulsive Transient Antenna. Uh, It's a mass of detectors attached to a hot air balloon which flies over a million square kilometres of ice waiting to pick up a signal. Let's face it, someone called ANITA or someone who loves someone called ANITA just started with the acronym and then forced the words to fit it, right? It would be difficult to come up with a neater explanation than that. (laughs) In its three flights so far, the experiment has detected two signals of a particle that couldn't be explained by regular physics. And not only that, but the signature of these particles exactly matches that of the right-handed neutrinos predicted by antiverse theory. So either the detector made a mistake and made it twice, which is eminently possible, or something very exciting is going on. Okay, so... The very exciting thing, uh, we've all heard the saying, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So what will it take before we can start to be more sure that there is a parallel universe to our, our own one out there? We need more experiments and we need more evidence. The data from Anita's fourth flight, which has already taken place, is still being analysed. So it's possible that will shed some light on the question. And researchers are also starting to combine their data with other experiments based in Antarctica, hoping that between them, the combined data will be able to shove the needle in the right direction. Right. So if we do get more experimental support for it, is the theory watertight? You know, we might have more information of of right-handed neutrinos, but will that mean for sure that there's a parallel universe? I can't speak for antiverse me, but I won't be putting any money on it right now. Uh, If if more right-handed neutrinos show up, then it'll be time to test some of the theory's other predictions, such as uh, the idea that the Big Bang produced no gravitational waves, for instance. Now, cosmologists haven't spotted any of these waves yet, but they have been hunting them. And if they continue not to find them, then that adds to the uh, pile of evidence. And now going back to the idea that this parallel universe is going backwards in time, would that mean any inhabitants of it are going backwards in time? And and therefore, to them... if we are going backwards in time. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, theoretically, yes. It's, an, it's entirely possible that the antiverse is populated by anti-people living on an anti-planet and recording an anti-podcast. <laughs> Alternatively, it could be completely barren and empty of life. Just because the laws of physics are the same doesn't mean it has to evolve in the same way and lead to planets and stars and life like ours has. But exactly as you were saying, each universe would see the other universe 
as traveling in the opposite direction. And that has a really interesting consequence for our perception of time. We tend to think of it as an external arrow that always points in the same direction, a universal constant. But if the antiverse exists in this way, time might be more like a personal weather vane pointing in whichever direction your universe happens to be going. Hmm. Okay, so not to put you on the spot here, well, I'm about to put you on the spot uh, to to try to speculate on what this means for our entire worldview, but it makes me wonder about the the Copernicus effect. So when people finally came round to understanding that Earth wasn't the centre of the universe, it, it changed how we thought of ourselves, or or at least you can argue that it changed cosmically how we thought of ourselves. And I wonder if the understanding that that time is fluid in in its direction like this. I wonder how that would change our view of ourselves. That's that's a profound question. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Let's come back to that another time. So after that, we certainly need a palate cleanser. And what better than our semi-regular look at lockdown recipes and the science of cooking Cat. Yes, this is another of Sam Wong's pieces. He's our social media editor and he writes our cookery column. And basically, um, Sam just spends his time rummaging in his kitchen cupboards and cooking things up. So this week he found a tin of condensed milk and he made dulce de leche. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but correct me if I'm wrong. Dulce de leche means sweet of milk or sweet milk. It's a kind of caramel sauce that's popular in South America. And the traditional method begins with milk, but using condensed milk just speeds up the process. And condensed milk is milk in which about 60% of the water has been evaporated and sugar has been added, a favourite of kids. Evaporated milk is something similar, but it's unsweetened, so it won't work for this recipe. So what you have to do is you remove the label from your can of condensed milk and put it on its side in a large pot and cover it with water. And then you just simmer it for two to three hours, uh, depending on how dark you like your caramel. But it's really crucial that the tin is completely submerged the whole time because this stops the can from overheating and causing a pressure buildup and potentially an explosion in your kitchen. Because liquid water won't exceed 100 degrees Celsius, a submerged tin won't get hotter than this either. When the time's up, use tongs to take the tin out of the water And make sure you let the tin cool completely before opening it or else hot dulce de leche could shoot out. And the sweetened milk will have turned into a thick brown paste that you can spread on toast or spoon onto fruit or my favourite, put it on ice cream. On toast? That sounds super indulgent, but uh, it sounds delicious. I hope you brought some into the studio for us. (laughs) The virtual studio. (laughs) Yummy. Virtual dulce de leche. The, the kind of science bit here is that although it's called caramel, the reaction responsible for uh, this in this recipe isn't caramelization, which only happens above 170 degrees Celsius. What's going on in your tin is the Maillard reaction. This occurs when sugars react with amino acids, which are the building blocks that make up proteins. And these are abundant in milk, obviously. And the products are a range of flavorsome compounds. Yeah, they're the things that we make when uh, when you're cooking meat as well. That's the Maillard reaction, and it's why meat tastes is tasty. I wondered whether this process worked for non-dairy milk, and it turns out it does. So you could use coconut milk to make a vegan dulce de leche. Maillard reactions happen at lower temperatures than caramelization, but are quite slow until you get to about 120 degrees C. In condensed milk, the high concentration of compounds for reactions and the prolonged cooking time can achieve browning 
even at 100 degrees C. So it's a bit of a cheat. I am definitely going to do this. I've done uh, a couple of Sam's recipes uh, so far. I've done the kimchi, which was delicious. Uh, I'm definitely going to do this one. Well, we'll post the link to the recipe at our Twitter feed at New Scientist Pod so everyone can find it there. Time out. We want to tell you about a New Scientist virtual event coming up on April the 30th. It's about something that occupies a special place in modern science and in the public mind. Yes, black holes. Last year, the first image of a black hole made headline news around the world, but there's still a lot that we don't know about them. So we've arranged an online lecture by leading astronomer Chris Impey of the University of Arizona. He'll reveal why the idea of a black hole, an object with gravity so strong that even light can't escape, begins with general relativity. He'll explain how Stephen Hawking transformed our understanding of black holes and why theorists still struggle to understand the singularity and what happens to information that falls into the event horizon. Following Chris's inspiring and fascinating lecture, you'll have the opportunity to ask him your burning questions about black holes. It's on the 30th of April and you don't have to leave your home. To find out how to register, go to newscientist.com events. We've been talking since we started the podcast, really, in January, about taking care of our mental as well as our physical health during this coronavirus crisis. But I think I, for one, have paid more heed to the physical things I can do, like washing my hands and social distancing. Kat, you've been looking into how we can protect our mental health. So tell us about the the biggest factors that are impacting us from this. What are are causing the challenges to mental health? I mean, it's, it's hard to think of things that aren't going to affect our mental well-being anyway in this situation. So we're living with this constant threat from something that we can't see. So that's an underlying source of anxiety for a lot of people. And then pretty much every aspect of our daily life has changed beyond recognition. So with lockdown, some people are going to be completely isolated for long periods of time. Others are going to be living cheek by jowl with um, other people in their homes. Many of us are having to find ways to work at the same time as looking after our children. There's huge amounts of financial insecurity that a lot of people are experiencing at the moment. And at the same time, we're having to do without a lot of our normal coping strategies and support systems. And that could be particularly problematic for certain groups of people. So especially people who are already living with mental health problems, people with addiction. And then you've got people working on the front line and who are providing essential services who are being thrown into potentially quite traumatic situations. So it's different for everyone, but there are all sorts of factors that could be having an effect on our on our mental health and our mental well-being. I've seen people saying that the mental health fallout is going to be huge and, and that we're really just not doing enough. What can we do for ourselves and as a society to start sort of acting against this problem? Yeah, so we we don't actually know right now what the mental health impact is going to be in the long term, but all the experts seem to agree that it is going to have a profound effect. We've written about this in the mag this week and we asked a range of experts working in mental health to give us their top tips on how to stay on top of the mental health challenges. We'll tweet a link to this at New Scientist Pod. Some of the tips do sound quite obvious when you when you say it. So things like trying to find a regular rhythm to your day, getting up in the morning at the same time, going to bed at the same time, trying to stay connected as much as possible with other people for kids finding new structures and routines it can be easy to forget in the throes of everything that's going on to to do these things and 
one of the interesting findings is that when it comes to loneliness, we know from research that volunteering, uh, for instance, taking somebody groceries or um, medications in a safe way can alleviate feelings of loneliness, just not just for the person who's who's receiving the service, but also for the for the volunteer who's doing it. And more broadly, is there anything we should be doing as a society? The question of what to do as a society is huge because we know that just like the physical effects of the virus, when it comes to mental health, some people are going to be at much higher risk. So we do need to do a lot of research to work out who these people are. We'll need to to do some constant monitoring and have a a really global effort looking at the, the mental health impacts to do that. And then we need to make sure that we get them the help that they need. So we could think about, for instance, families with mental health issues. Uh, We're already seeing and getting feedback from them that they're struggling to cope. So we need to deliver professional help remotely somehow. And another really important example is people dealing with domestic violence. There's been a huge increase of calls to domestic violence helplines. And so they need to have a way to get out of that situation. So we know that there are high risk groups and we need to set up systems to help them. What about the difference between what's a a normal response to this and a reaction that could have actual mental health implications? Because, you know, distress and frustration are are normal emotions to feel. So when does this bleed into something that we should be concerned about? I think that's a really important point. Feeling anxious, distressed, frustrated. Those are normal responses to a really difficult situation. And that doesn't equate to a mental health crisis. Um, We know from one survey that was done in the week that lockdown came into place in the UK that we saw a spike in anxiety and depression straight after those measures were announced. And then those effects calmed down during the following week. So as a population, we seem to be quite resilient. But we also know that for some people, it's going to be a lot more than that. And what we know from past experience is that identifying problems early and identifying those people who are most likely to develop mental health problems and giving them the right help can mitigate a lot of the long-term mental health effects. I've heard that in relationships, um, the partners in a, a couple can sort of take it in turns when it comes to mental health. What does that mean? So this is the idea that couples often seem to share their anxiety in turns. So one person feels highly anxious and the other one feels much calmer and then they swap. So the anxiety never actually leaves the couple, but it ping pongs between them. And that can sometimes be quite useful, but it can also create conflict in a relationship because it can start to feel like it's one person against the other or that the other person doesn't care about them. So it can start to feel like it's one against the other or that the other person doesn't care about them. Is there any special advice for people with kids? So kids might actually feel the effects of this particularly strongly And there's several reasons for that. So firstly, their brains are still developing and they're less able to control their emotional responses to threatening or worrying situations. And kids might also struggle to deal with these conflicting messages that they're getting. So they're hearing things on the news and then their parents are saying something different. And then on top of that, they're having to deal with huge disruptions to their lives with the schools closing. Yeah, my my daughter is saying, I want to go back to school, which is weird, but she really misses her friends. And I said, well, you know, you can see them on Zoom. Uh, but she says, no, but I want to really see them. So, yeah, it is a, it's a real problem. 
Yeah, my my son started talking to cars and ants <laughs> in the garden and things like that. Um, but but it is a real problem, and surveys are showing that young people are feeling really lonely, and actually um, more so than older groups. So establishing some kind of structure and routine will be really helpful for kids, even if things are different to how they used to be, and even if it doesn't always work and things kind of go tits up, that's okay. And another thing is that we need to try and be open and honest with children and acknowledge our emotions and their emotions and not to to spread feelings of panic to them. Um, But on a more positive note, something one of our our experts said is that something like a pandemic, which isn't an interpersonal problem, like, say, bullying, actually has a much lower risk of causing mental health problems in young people. That's really interesting. I was also wondering about frontline workers because they're under incredible stress at the moment and that's including being at risk of something called moral injury. What what does that concept involve? People working in the military are often put in situations where they want to do the right thing but they can't and this violation of their moral code can lead to psychological distress. So that's what we mean by moral injury. So it's important to note this isn't a mental illness but it does leave people more vulnerable. And if you think about the job of healthcare workers dealing with coronavirus, they might well be put into similar situations where they can't act according to their morals. For instance, they might have to choose who to give treatment to if there aren't enough resources. But the research with the military also gives us quite good ways to deal with this kind of situation. So there are things that you can do. The first thing is to try and identify people who are shifting from a normal level of distress to something more serious so managers and team leaders in mental health need to be prepared and know how to monitor their staff for those signs and then intervene and there are things that are really simple like having a a break having a chat and a cup of tea for as little as five minutes can actually avoid long-term mental health effects so we know from the Lebanon war in 1982 that putting these kinds of implementations in place saw an improvement in people's mental health 20 years later. Thanks Kat there's a lot of things we can take from that that we can actually implement into our lives so hopefully we can start to mitigate against these things. That's our sci-fi alert which you will know by now sounds when we have a story in the magazine that has already been written about in science fiction. Rowan. Yeah this week it's about Mary Shelley So until this week, mostly what I knew about Mary Shelley was that she was this extraordinary genius who wrote Frankenstein when she was only 18. Uh, She married the poet Percy Shelley and they hung out in that house in Geneva with Lord Byron and they all wrote their stories. She set Frankenstein a century into her past. But what I didn't know was that she wrote a book set 250 years into her future, which is in the 2070s. And it was about a pandemic that kills all humans except one. Did anyone else know about this? No, I had no idea. No. No. Okay, yeah, so it wasn't just me. I think everyone knows Frankenstein, but few people know about this other book. It's called The Last Man. Um, There are some similar themes to Frankenstein. So in Frankenstein, you could see it as a warning about what science might be able to achieve. It's a kind of admonishment of science. And, And The Last Man is about an apocalypse that comes about because... She predicts that medical science will become too weak and timid. Of course, the pandemic we're currently living through is happening not because science is too weak, but because it's hard to prepare adequately for a a deadly global disease. 
It's really interesting that the sole survivor of the pandemic in her book is a man who has immunity to the disease. I'm not sure we find out exactly what the pathogen is in the book, but we know that she, that Mary Shelley knew a lot about the smallpox vaccine, uh, so maybe she had a virus in mind. There are other weirdly prescient parallels with the current crisis. She talks about isolation a lot, of course, and how the natural world just carries on and how that can be kind of weird, which is something I've seen a lot of people remarking on these days. I'm going to read out a passage from the book where she describes nature just carrying on as normal as humans die out. Before I read it, thanks to Maria Popova, at Brain Picker on Twitter, for telling me about this. Here's the extract. Winter passed away, and spring, led by the months, awakened life in all nature. The forest was dressed in green, the young calves frisked on the new-sprung grass. The wind-winged shadows of light clouds sped over the green cornfields. The hermit cuckoo repeated his monotonous all-hail-to-the-season. The nightingale, bird of love and minion of the evening star, filled the woods with song, while Venus lingered in the warm sunset and the young green of the trees lay in gentle relief along the clear horizon. Okay. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Next up, we're seeing from hospital data that men are more likely to develop severe COVID-19 and to die from the disease. But how significant is the sex difference and what's behind it? Penny. Well, there's enough evidence now to suggest that there is a real sex difference. We first got a glimpse of this in Wuhan, where some studies reported that men admitted to hospital with COVID-19 outnumbered women by more than two to one, and that as many as 75% of those who died were men. And, and, these found, and these findings are now being supported by other studies, some larger studies um, in all sorts of other countries as the pandemic has developed. So in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, for example, around 70% of critically ill patients admitted to intensive care with COVID-19 have been male. And around 62% of those admitted to hospital in New York City have been men too. Okay, so is it that men are more likely to get infected in the first place? That doesn't seem to be the case. So the New York study, for example, found that an equal number of men and women catch the virus. So what we seem to be seeing is that the coronavirus is more likely to progress to severe illness and then death in men. I've seen some people suggesting the reason could be smoking. Yeah, that's one theory that came up quite early on. And one of the reasons for that is because there's a big sex difference in smoking in China. So far more men do it than women. And tobacco smoke may actually cause lung cells to make more of the protein that the virus uses to get into our cells. So you'd think that that could be quite a plausible mechanism. But some researchers say this hypothesis isn't really supported by the data. So it's a bit hard because not everyone's recording which patients smoke and which ones don't. But by some measures, smokers account for only about 12.5% of the people who got severely ill in China with COVID-19. And that's actually much lower than the proportion of smokers you'd see in the general population there. Right. So could be something deeper about men. Yeah. And, and we do know that men tend to have higher rates of various other health conditions, things like obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease. And we do already know that these kinds of conditions are linked to worse COVID-19 outcomes. 
And that New York study that I mentioned, um, the researchers behind that found that when they factored these conditions into their analysis, it actually went uh, quite a long way to help explain the sex difference they were seeing. But that may not be the whole story. Uh, There's some other ideas as well. We also know that men and women naturally have slightly different immune systems. Generally, women appear to have stronger immune defences. They're also more prone to autoimmune disorders, for example. And, And one really interesting theory is that there's a gene that helps detect viruses that is more active in women because it sits on the X chromosome, meaning that women have two copies of this gene, but men only have one. Right. But I thought one X chromosome in every female cell is is inactivated in women. Yeah, me too. I found this really interesting. Um, But it turns out that, um, at least in the case of this one gene called TLR7, somehow it escapes some of that inactivation and women produce more of, of the protein that that gene encodes for. There's also some more, um, I guess you'd you'd call them stereotypical ideas behind the sex differences. <laughs> so it may be possible, for example, that female sex hormones boost the immune system. Everyone always blames female sex hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, but this hasn't really been looked at in the context of COVID-19 yet. And it's also been suggested that men are more unhygienic, which may put them at greater risk. Yeah, I wish I could strenuously deny this, but I have to say from my experience, I think that's true. Yeah, it it is generally true. So you may remember, it feels like a very long time ago when we were talking about the science of handwashing in a previous episode. A lot of the studies that sort of monitor people in bathrooms tend to find that men are much less likely to wash their hands after using the toilet. So there's some evidence there that that might be the case. And it's possible that might have an effect. So One study in China found that men with COVID-19 in hospital were also more likely to be carrying other microbes too, including flu. So it's possible that because of um, slightly lower hygiene practices, some men might be more likely to carry other pathogens that then might exacerbate COVID-19. Okay, so uh, it's another good reason to give up smoking and take up hand washing. Well, it certainly couldn't hurt. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. And there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. Yes, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. We've got interviews with Greta Thunberg, Cristiana Figueres, string theorist Brian Green, feminist activist Caroline Criado-Perez, And coming next, we've got Chief Scientist of WWF, Rebecca Shaw. Do get in touch on Twitter at NewScientistPod or email us at podcasts at NewScientist.com and let us know how things are for you at this moment in the time of social distancing. Uh, By the way, a couple of people have written to ask where are the sources for the stories we talk about. The answer is they're all in the magazine. We'll tweet them at NewScientistPod in case for some weird reason you haven't yet subscribed to the mag. New episodes of New Scientist Weekly go live every Friday, so subscribe to our show at all the usual places you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 